0: Love to, I uh, love to read all of what I want to cover today, but I'm not going to do it. I hate that I'm not doing it because we've done we've done it right up to now, but um, the story of Jephthah and is the character that we want to look at um, really quickly this morning. Uh, and he takes up most of chapter ten, all of chapter eleven, and and then he. He's a bit greedy. He takes most of chapter twelve as well, um, and there is a lot to say. I'm just aware of just aware of time, and uh, and actually, there's some things in this in this in chapter eleven, especially that are that are outrageous. They're really horrendous and I don't want to I don't really want to ignore it I don't want to dwell on it too long but let me let's let me read let me read uh, if you've got your Bible um, let me read from from chapter 10 Judges 10 verse 6 and we'll go to chapter 11 verse 9 again and here we go this is the familiar pattern this is the cycle that we've just become painfully familiar with again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord they served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and the gods of Aram the gods of Sidon the gods of Moab the gods of the Ammonites the gods of the Philistines and because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him he became angry with them he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites And the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayonites oppressed you. And you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned do with us, whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. When they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord... Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead. The Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attacks against the Ammonites will be head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was, was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers, reckless men, gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war in Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, "Don't you hate me, and didn't you hate me and drive me from the, my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble?" The elders of Gilead said to him, "Nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead." And Jephthah answered, "Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, will I?" Really be your head. Uh, Let me read another couple of verses. The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of the Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Let me acknowledge. um, Hopefully the boys are not concentrating on this next part, because at the end of chapter 11, Jephthah um, takes on this role of being their rescuer, takes on this role of being deliverer. And we, and then the rest, a lot of chapter 11 goes on to, to tell us about the 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 back and forth that went on between the Ammonite king and Jephthah. They ended up going to war, and and uh, Jephthah, was victorious, Israel subdued, Ammon, we're told. And then Jephthah made this crazy vow. Read the story. Read the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12 just to follow on with what we're going. But at the end of chapter 11, he's made this vow. Of, God, if you give me victory, I'm going to, I promise that whatever comes through the doors of my home whenever I get home, I, I will sacrifice. And so we're told that they were victorious, and Israel subdued Ammon. And he made his way home victorious, and the first, the first person that had come out of the door as he arrived back was his daughter. His one and only girl. And part of me is tempted to ignore that part of the story. I think I've always ignored that. could never understand it. Never understand, actually, why would he follow through? Why would he follow through? It is, a difficult, it is a difficult read. At the end of his story. It's probably the most shocking of all that we've read. And I want to point it out because I think this is, a, this is another one of the... I think we've picked this thread up as we've gone along. This is what can happen. And I know it's a, an extreme example, but this is what can happen when we allow the worldly culture and the worldly attitudes to come alongside to live alongside true beliefs. So I have no doubt, Jeff, had some understanding of who God was. Been raised up, God had called him. The spirit of the Lord had come upon him. But had been so, had been so. The, the children of Israel, the people of God, had so given themselves to the other gods that it got to the place where the the worldly cultures and the worldly attitudes had lived alongside their true beliefs. I'm reading through Second Kings at the minute, and it gives us another insight into what was going on into the cycle. The cycle continues beyond the book of Judges. They worshipped the Lord, we're told in Second Kings 17. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. And at the end of that, chapter 17, even while they were worshipping the Lord, they were serving idols. And we've talked about it before. We've talked about the dangers. We've talked about the consequences of, of, of our worship coexisting with the worship of idols. And uh, we've talked about the dangers in that. We've talked about the consequences of that. Some stuff has come up in our conversations that has reminded us of what can happen when we allow what the worldly cultures to infiltrate. To, to, to live alongside true beliefs that's what would happen. because the, the, the gods that had came and they'd give themselves were told in the towards the end of chapter ten that and through the words of the lord he says you, you give yourselves to the to the ammonites, but I rescued you you give yourself to the to the Moabites and I rescued you you kept giving yourself to the gods of these other these other nations they had uh were told in in verse six all the gods they served the seven the seven it's a sevenfold rebellion and later on in verse 11 when the Lord replies he reminds them that there was a sevenfold deliverance we're told of seven different gods that they'd given to and we're told of the seven times that God in their oppression had rescued them and they, so in verse 6 they'd served the Baals they'd served the gods of Aram they'd served the gods of Moab and so the the, the these, these ungodly, these pagan attitudes, these pagan cultures that came and lived alongside true beliefs. And just again, just to go back to this really quickly, my, my problem as I read over this story and as I think of the character, as I've caught, been caught up in his story this week, Jeff's story, is that he had no concept of the grace of God no concept of his grace. He didn't trust him. I think that he that he was, he was so afraid, he feared that God would strike him down if he didn't follow through with the oath that he had made. It was a rash thing to say. It was a stupid vow to make. But he just, he so didn't trust in the grace of God. He so missed the concept of his grace. He so missed his heart. He'd so missed that he was a God of compassion. He was a God committed to his people. And he'd missed it. And he didn't trust them. And so last night, I, I, the opportunity was to, uh, to share with a, with a group of young people down in a Presbyterian church outside of lay And, and just in, in sharing my story, I, I realized as I was talking to these guys that as, as I've journeyed, as I've went on this journey of discovering the heart of the Father, discovering that he actually really loves me. And I don't know if you can say that with real confidence, but I'm increasingly getting to that place where I can stand and say, he loves me. He really loves me. He just doesn't tolerate me. He, really, he actually likes me. He is for me. He is committed to me. And, you know, I've, I've grown up in the church my whole life, and I've, I believe I've always wanted to follow and obey Jesus. There's been something about the revelation of who he truly is. There's been something about the revelation of his character, his true nature, that I've just been swept up in. It feels like although I, I feel like I'd given him in some way, I've given him my heart through through a prayer that I prayed, it feels like now he's just he's, he's just captivating my heart because he's so compassionate, he's so full of love, he's so full of mercy, he's so full of forgiveness. He is for me, and I realise that. That even though I was involved in church my whole life, I, I got to that place where I felt like he was asking me, Do you how do you know me? I felt like it brought me to the end of John's gospel where he says to Peter, Do you Peter, do you love me? Neil, do you love me? Do you know me? And uh, and I realized in those moments over the last number of years that I found it I found it hard to to answer that question. It was a real challenge, being really honest. It was it was difficult. It was, I found it being really uncomfortable because I was like, God, I know about you. I, know, I feel like I know so much about you. But I don't know how, how well I could answer that question that do, that, do I know you? And so as I've, as, I've, as I've thought through my journey, I've realized that the more that I've got to know Him, the more it's ran parallel to my ability to trust Him. To understand him as a God who's full of grace. To understand this concept that he is a God who's full of grace, full of kindness. And, uh, and I, real, I, I realize that uh, you, you don't trust, we won't trust someone we don't know. We won't surrender everything. We won't give our all to someone that we don't know, that we think is constantly disappointed in us. is constantly ready to push us away if we mess up. That's not who he is. And... and uh, and I love that he continues to reveal his nature, his character uh, as Father. And I just think that Jephthah didn't really know him. And so he couldn't trust him. He wouldn't trust him and he wouldn't, couldn't understand him as a God of grace. Let me say this a couple of things I want to say, a couple of points I want to make, and then I want to just finish. By looking at the start of Jephthah's journey, the, our introduction to Jephthah. But just as we've as we've read those verses at the end of uh, Judges chapter ten, we see if you were to go back to to Judges chapter three and verse thirteen, you see that they were they were oppressed by the Ammonites. They were oppressed by the Ammonites. And here in chapter 10 and verse 6, we're told that they served the gods of the Ammonites. And so it seems like as we've gone through this book, it seems like every time that Israel worshipped the idols or the gods of another nation, that nation ends up oppressing them. I think we could see it every time. don't have time this morning. But I think if you were to go to every nation. Every time there's a nation that comes to oppress, or every time that they've given themselves to the gods of another nation, that nation ends up being the one that comes to oppress them. I was just really praying about this this morning. I find myself just being drawn to this over and over again, this idea that idolatry leads to enslavement. Idolatry leads to enslavement. And I don't know what it is maybe it's different for all of us there's, there's ones that are really obvious we give ourselves we give all of our energy we, give, we, cons- we are consumed with by an addiction to something there's drugs or alcohol or whatever it is it, be, it becomes something that we, we give all of our lives to we give all our attention to it becomes the thing that we, that we worship it's, it becomes the idol in our lives and actually what it does it ends up enslaving you it leads to your enslavement. It leads to the, that thing controlling your life because whatever you worship will 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 control your life. Whatever you worship will will have all of your attention. Will have all of your all of your focus. Idolatry leads to enslavement, and it's it's not just in the area of addiction. It's in the area of possessions, material possessions. You want the next thing. You want the next gadget. You have to keep up with the Joneses. You have to have the next thing. You have to have the next console. You have to have the next dress. Whatever it is, that becomes the thing that consumes you. It becomes the thing that you give yourself to. And inevitably it leads to enslavement. Because you'll max out your credit cards. You'll put yourself in debt just so that you can, because you've made material possessions, the idol, the thing that you've given yourself to. Or in my my case, it can be even more subtle than that. Because the approval of man became an idol in my life. The approval of of man became the thing that I I worshipped, that I craved, that I longed for more than anything. It was really subtle. But actually, idolatry leads to enslavement. And so because I created the approval of man, the approval of man as an idol, it became the thing that enslaved. It became the thing that distracted. It became the thing that caused me to never find true fulfillment, to never find true purpose, because if I didn't find it in the approval of man, it became a thing that trapped me, it became a thing that snared me. It can be really subtle, but I can assure you, whatever it is, the, the idol will chew you up and spit you out, leads to enslavement. So whatever it is that you worship, it'll control your life, and as we As we catch the heart of the Father the whole way through the scriptures, he's longing to take hold of us. He's longing for our worship. He's longing for our repentance. He's longing for us to come with all of our hearts wholeheartedly because he wants to control us in the best possible way. He wants to mold us and shape us and and form us into the people that he has always longed us to be. He's longing that none should be saved, that we would be ones that would live faithfully and fruitfully. We get... To this, uh, we get to the, this dialogue between the Israelites and the Lord. We haven't always been—we haven't always been uh, had the access into this dialogue because many times in the cycle we've just read, uh, the Israelites did evil. Um, a nation came and oppressed them. They cried out, and the Lord sent the deliverer. And we've seen this shift when we got to the story of Gideon. Because for the first time, rather than sending them a deliverer, he first of all sent them a prophet. He was longing for true repentance. He was longing for heart change. He was longing uh, not just for regret, not just for the consequences of their sin, but because of what it did to him. We talked about that in the story of Gideon. We mentioned that regret is all about us. Regret is that we are so grieved, we are so broken, we are so hurt. But repentance is... We have so grieved him. We have so broken his heart. We talked about that a while back. And, and so here we're, we see the familiar pattern. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And then the Lord replies. And this is, this is almost shocking because it, it seems like he's going to do nothing. He says all of these seven the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, Maonites, they oppressed you. And every time you cried out, I saved you from their hands, but you kept on forsaking me and serving them. And so I was just struck by that. I was just struck by that over the week, that recognition. I know we've talked about regret and repentance not being the same, but even recognition. Recognition is not the same as Repentance. And so recognizing it is really important. Recognizing it is very important. I'm not saying that it's not, but it is not the same as repentance. Recognizing, recognition is not the same as repentance. This is what um, Michael Wilcock says. It's as if the Lord is saying, I know what this cry of yours is. It is merely a cry for help, which might as well be addressed to the Baals, as to me. So even though the there is this recognition, the Lord is saying, this cry might as well be to the bales as it is to me. We uh just at the stage of life that we are at, many of you are in the same stage, having young three young kids. And uh and so whenever you have young kids the the people that you end up being closest to and have good friendships with are also people that have young kids. And so we spend a lot of time in each other's houses or out and about or whatever the case may be. And uh and there's just lots of noise. Lots of noise and uh most of the time it's good. We love that the kids are free in this place. Um And I'm aware that maybe for people that don't have kids, that can be uh, maybe not as pleasant. But thank you, you're so gracious and you're so kind and and all of that. Um, But times whenever we're together and you know like it's inevitable, you know 10, 20 minutes into the time of the kids running around, having fun, laughing, joking, that eventually you're going to hear the cry. Everybody's sort of waiting for it. And secretly, for some of us not so secretly, but you hear the cry, and you recognize that it's not yours. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. But, we, but we, we're like that. We know, we hear, like a parent, we know the cry of our child. And now that our kids are a bit older, they're eight and seven, Jada will be five on Tuesday. And um, so we've got to the stage now where I think we're we, we're pretty we know pretty well now whether the cry is genuine or not I think we've got to that stage but this is still and I don't know if you're fami- if this is familiar for you parents, grandparents aunts, uncles, babysitters uh, whatever you find, role you find yourself in but even when even when you know the cry is not genuine, you sit there and say that's not a real cry I'm not convinced that's not a real cry. they'll shake it off and get on with it, and you sit there and uh but eventually, even though you know even when we know, even when I know that the cry is not genuine, and I sit there pretending that it's fine, they'll get over it in the end, I can't help but respond anyway in the end. Judith can't help but respond anyway. And I think for some of you, you know that. That's not a genuine cry. I don't believe that. Don't believe you. Your talent heals. All of that. But you can't help but respond anyway. And I thought of that as I read this, this uh, account, this dialogue between the Lord and the Israelites. And I, I, tell, I was absolutely blown away by this verse. I've probably read it several times, probably read it, a lo- like I don't know how many times I've read it, but here it was like in beaming out off the page. And the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear their misery no longer. And so even though even though there was still an uncertainty about how genuine the cry was, even when as readers reading on in this story, we're still not sure, is this a genuine cry or not? Is this a true call for forgiveness? Is this a true call to return once again? And even when we're not sure, the Lord can't help but respond anyway. Because he could bear their misery no longer. He could bear their oppression no longer. And it feels like he's going to do nothing. But they kept no, no, they kept knocking. They kept going back. We're going to keep coming back, and he could bear their misery no longer. He could bear their misery no longer. He is so gracious. He is so good. He could bear their misery no longer. Let me f- let let's let me finish just by coming back to this story and trying to tie in our what we're acknowledging today. We're acknowledging Adoption Sunday. We're acknowledging, as Judith has done so well, that reminded us it's about the kids. We can get so caught up in thinking it's about us. It's about the length of time we have to wait. It's about our story and and all of that. And so often we have to remind ourselves. Like Judith says, that I ground her. She needs to remind me often. It's about the, it's about the children. We're, we're We're doing this because, so at the minute, the minute there is two hundred foster families needed in Northern Ireland. The number won't stop increasing. There's 2,000 plus kids in foster care right now. The number keeps going up. It was at two thousand last two thousand and seventy-nine last year. This year, it's at two thousand five hundred kids that are in foster care. Two hundred. Two hundred of them are in the right now need a home. And, um, and so as we try to tie in the story of Jephthah in with these kids that have been rejected, that have been cast out, there's something about the story of Jephthah which I think which I think lands him in the hall of faith or the hall of fame, whatever you, whatever you call it, in Hebrews chapter 11. Because you, you read through the whole of this, this mighty warrior story. You get to the end of it and you think you messed it up at the end. But then as you continue to read through your, your Bible, you'll get to Hebrews chapter 11. And you'll read about the heroes of the faith. And you get down to verse 31 and 32 and all of the, all of the obvious ones, all of the big names. And there in the middle of them all is Jephthah. And you've caught the whole story of Jeff. Then you wonder how he made it there. And Maybe if there's many others that we can think that of, but Jeff, he, he ended so, he ended so badly. It ended stuck with to me and my. It ended in such shame, such pain. But as you go back to the start of his story. And knowing the heart that the father has for the isolated, for the vulnerable, for the rejected. That's Jephthah's story. Jephthah was a Gilead, Gileadite. His father was Gilead. And his mother was a prostitute. And so, so straight away, his whole upbringing, his whole family life with, with his, Gilead's wife had bore other sons. And as they grew up, they they drove Jephthah away. He grew up his whole life knowing the rejection of a family. He grew up his whole life knowing the dysfunction of family life. Grew up in a broken home, rejected by the rest of his family and actually ends up as the leader of a gang. This group that he ends up being the leader of, the group of adventurers, that might sound like Pitbur Grills esque. it's not the, the the word for the adventurers here is worthless, reckless wanderers. He ends up becoming a leader of this group. All he's known is rejection and he finds it he finds it in a group of reckless men who just here wanting a leader. And Jeff is just so looking to belong. He's so looking to belong that he finds it in a band of a band of guys, and it's almost like he doesn't, it doesn't matter what they're up to. It doesn't matter what they're doing. I just have this, he just had this insatiable desire to belong because he had never done before. Never known the, the love of a family. He'd never known the affection of growing up and the function of family. And yet, yet God raises him up. And so I love, I love the start of his journey. And I think that's, I think that's what, what has him being one to remember. Because we need constantly reminded that the, our backgrounds and our upbringing does not disqualify us. William and Samuel and Jimmy Lee. You're and you Not just these boys, every, all 200, 200 kids. That, the men that are not being given a chance. Not being given a home. they become a bit reckless. they become a bit challenging. All i have known, known is isolation and all they need is uh, is someone to love them. Someone to say that your 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 upbringing and your background never disqualifies you from doing all that that God has placed upon you—the gifts and the talents, the personalities that He's placed in these super boys—is uh, never disqualifies them. Because I think God intentionally introduces us to this character to, to remind us of that, and the fact it feels like He's more than not disqualifying them, it in fact, it prepares them. And God redeems Jeff's brokenness so he can be one that will rescue. That is an incredible lesson. If we can catch that. God, not only does he not disqualify or not, not bring bringing does not... Not bringing our background is not disqualify. More than that, God can redeem it to use the brokenness to rescue. And so it's, unrela- it's unrelated in some ways, but Alan, our friend Alan Emerson over in Emmanuel in Oregon uh, released his book last week on the journey that he went on after losing his wife, uh, his 23-year-old wife, to cancer. It's an incredible story, and, that, and to hear the testimonies of how God is, is redeeming his brokenness to bring rescue and that's, uh, that's what he does that's what he's always done that's always been his heart it's always been his, his nature and so I love I love the introduction to this I don't want to be I know that it doesn't end well but I love it that we we end on this introduction of why God raised them up, of what God's seen. And, um, oh man, sorry, but I, I'm all over the place. I can't, uh, I can't string a thought now together. Um, yeah, so uh, I literally can't string a thought. So, why don't we finish? Why don't we're done? I, I don't have really much more to say anyway. So, um, he's so good, he's a good father, and I'm loved by him and you are incredibly loved by him. Um, so girls, why don't you pop me out of my misery here and come and sing. Thank you.